Search me, O oh God. You know, that, that ought to be our attitude, you know, every day, right? Search me, O oh God. Because listen, he, he's about the only one we can trust with searching us, right? With, to, to show any kind of grace or, or uh, compassion. If you would, please turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4, 4 verse 32 uh, through chapter 5, verse 11. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read verse 9 through 11 of chapter 5 as you stand for the reading of God's word, and then I'll pray. Acts chapter 5, verse 9 through 11, and then I'll pray. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you and we lift up this service to you, which we have already through music and through other prayers and through our giving. Father, we lift it up to you as a, as a way of expressing our love to you. And we do pray that you would move in our midst in a way that uh, whatever we do here today in the form of worship would give you glory and it would bring us your goodness that you would open our eyes to understand, open our hearts to embrace. And Father, we just thank you for this day you've given us to come and worship as God's people, the one and only true God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Yeah, Bill was right. I might say something about Joey. But all I can say about Joey is I was supposed to pick him up. It was supposed to come in around, what, 2 in the afternoon. And it kept getting delayed, delayed, delayed. So I finally picked him up at 2 in the morning. So I'm in Oklahoma City for 12 hours figuring out how to stay at a love station, hang out in my truck, sleep in my truck, whatever. So we left the base probably about 3.30 and we were in Okima by about 4.30 and I told Joey, I said, I've got to take a nap. I can't see the lines anymore. So he got something to eat, got perked up and he drove the rest of the way home. So me and him got to Inola about 6.45. We crashed about 7.30. Karen woke us up about 2 yesterday and uh, we went to pick up his car and to the Black Bear Diner to celebrate my birthday, his homecoming. So that's kind of been and then we even talked to his sister over the phone, some kind of FaceTime or something. So that's kind of been my weekend. And I was pretty tired. Uh, I thought I could handle it. But, uh, you know, when you turn 62, as my father-in-law used to say, you can't cut the mustard like you used to anymore. So, But anyway, so here we are in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. I've entitled this message, The Church and Their Possessions. Remember, the whole series is the birth of the church and the development of the church. It develops as they come across things. The, the brand new church in the book of Acts is, is responding to things, reacting to things, and making decisions. So here's part of that development. All of a sudden, uh, in the midst of the day of Pentecost and what all they were doing there when many people were being saved and, and God was continuing to add to the church daily, those were being saved. Now the church is developing about an attitude about their own possessions, what they own and what, 
how that involves God and how God's involved in their possessions. And that's what we're going to talk about, the possessions of the church, the church members that possess certain things, lands and, and all kinds of stuff. So as, they, as these disciples come out of that situation where they had healed a lame man and gave God glory and preached the gospel, and then we know the religious rulers came around them and even put them in the midst of them, right in the middle of them, and threatened them and said, don't you preach in any other name. And, and then last week when they came back and told everybody the story, uh, they were all rejoicing that they were persecuted for Christ's namesake. They were even bolder, even more confident in what God was doing. And just like when the lame man was uh, raised to walk on his feet to authenticate the message they preached, today we're going to see that God is going to use the idea that they're giving away possessions to, to different people's needs. Maybe not, you know, it's not communism, making everything equal, but as they see a need, they, they react and respond to that need. And, and God's using that to authenticate, once again, their, what they're doing, their message and their generosity. Because it'll go on to say later on that, you know, fear fell on the church. In other words, they just became deeper devoted to God. And we read that in the text. So as we talk about the church, and their possessions, it's a, it's a further development of the church in that day responding to their situations, what God is doing, and, and whatever situations God's put them in. And you know what? In, an, in a sense, even our church is developing more every day because we come up with circumstances we find ourselves in, right, by the grace of God. By a providential act of God puts us in situations, and we've got to respond biblically. We've got to respond rightly. And so the church is still developing in that sense that we're constantly changing with our culture, changing with needs and things, and we've got to engage in a certain way. And so the church isn't arrived yet. We're not raptured or caught up and arrived yet. We're still being sanctified. We're still being processed, matured. And this church will go through this. Another church will go through that. And, and we look through the scripture to see how we respond to it. Well, today we find out some principles about the church and their possessions. Not the church possession, like, like just, just the possessions of those of the church. So look at verse 32 through 37 with me of chapter 4. And in those verses we find out, many shared and gave, and in their giving they strengthened the church's influence. Many shared and gave, strengthening the church influence. Look at verse 32 to 37 of chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who believed, remember people were being saved as God was adding to the church daily. Now the multitude or the, the majority of those who were being, who had believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed individually was his own. In other words, yeah, it's not, not just for me. But they had all things in common, that is, concerning need and meeting needs. Verse 33. And, when, and, and with great power, during that time, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold 
and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Remember, it wasn't just some equal distribution of money. It was just when there was a need, there was money there to meet a need. And it says, And they laid the apostles' feet and distributed each one as anyone had need. Verse 36, And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So in verse 32 through 37 of chapter 4, it says that a multitude of people were being saved. And out of that multitude, they began to realize, you know, what I have is not just for me. What I have, I don't really own. It's, it's only mine because it belongs to God, and therefore, I'm just a steward of it. So in that attitude of oneness and the idea of helping other people, many of these people began to share and give to those needs, and therefore, it strengthened the church's influence. Now, I've, I've pastored some churches that uh, were very generous, but there were times in their generosity, it was kind of us four and no more. Now, we ain't doing that. You know, they didn't realize that what the church had or what the church folk had was, was something as a steward to give away or to give to something that gives God glory, to help somebody. And they just wouldn't give beyond whatever they had already designed. And, you know, lots of times when we have that attitude, we forget it all belongs to God. It's not my money. It's not your money. And, of course, once we gather like we do, we, we took off and we gather, and we as a church decide to do something, then we ought to do it because it's what the church said is the will of God that we do something. Well, this church in that day, they begin to share. They begin to give. And in that giving and that sharing, and in that attitude of oneness concerning people's needs, it strengthened the church's influence. God used their generosity to authenticate their message. People saw these people living in a world that was dog-eat-dog at, at worst, and you scratch my back if you'll scratch my back at best. They all of a sudden saw a church that said, you know what, everything I have is available to go to the church to do what God wants to do to help somebody so that through that we can authenticate what we say. Well, what's the message of the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, God in his generosity gave all because we had a great need called salvation. We had a great need for our sins to be paid for. And the church here in their generosity and their oneness of generosity, they're authenticating this gospel saying, just as we believe God gave to our greatest need, we're going to give to your need. And it's just a, an influence of saying, we believe in what we say we believe. Their attitude was oneness as a church. Oneness. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Some of us in this building have more money and possessions than others, right? I mean, we all have different scales of what you have, I have, they have. 
And not a one of us should have the attitude to say, well, I have this, and I've been given this much, so when the church budget comes around, I've got this much say, because maybe you give more than the next person, the next person, versus I have this, I've given this, and I've given it to the church along with what you've given and you've given, and now we have this, what should we do with it? <clears throat> Lots of times it would be real easy to know what you're giving to the church financially for sure. It's easy for you to know, it's easy for me to know and say, okay, I've been given this, therefore I still have that attitude as if, and it's still mine. You know, once I give this, it's not mine anymore. It's given to the church for the church by the will of God to do. And, and the idea of oneness is, is that once I give it, no matter what amount it is, once I give it, it's not mine anymore. And really, it never was mine. It was always God's, and he led me to give this to the church to make a decision what we do with it. These people had an attitude of oneness. They had that attitude. Whatever I have, because listen, it says some had lands and, and houses, and they were selling them. But I'm sure there were other people that had other things, maybe may just been personal items. But it shows an attitude that whether it was the lands or the houses that they were selling, people were willing to sell certain things they had and give it to the church. They had a oneness, a oneness that says whatever you give and whatever I give, it's for God's glory. It's for showing compassion. It's for authenticating what we say we preach that God gave and saved us. So we're going to give in like manner to authenticate the message. Their attitude of oneness was in the church. Their attitude of devotion was shared in the church because many people, lands, houses, whatever they had, they were selling them. They weren't doing anything crazy like selling everything they had and therefore had nothing. But they were, they, they were either selling out of surplus of what they had, or some might have been selling things sacrificially. But they were doing it for one reason. And that's to authenticate God's message of giving his son and to show and influence the world around them. They had a devotion that was shared amongst all of them. And because of that, they were of one accord in this time of giving of possessions. They were giving to distribute within the church, first and foremost, because it says, as any of them had need, it was taken care of. It was taken care of. Why was that? Because many of them shared the idea, the attitude that, you know what? God owns all that I have, and whatever he leads me to sell and give to the church, that's what I'm doing. They had a oneness so that we can authenticate God's message and we can help and provide hope for those within the church and those outside the church. So many shared, and it gave strength to the church influence. It authenticated what they said they believed about how much God gave. Secondly, chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, not only were many sharing and giving, which strengthened the church influence, but in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, some purposed and lied about this time, and it weakened the church character. Some purposed and lied, weakening the church character. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. But, in other words, in, in opposite of what these other people were doing, but a certain man named Ananias 
with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, in other words, for himself, okay? Some of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of that and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? When it remained, was it not your own? In other words, when you had it and hadn't sold it, wasn't it all yours to keep? When it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? In other words, at least tell the truth about what you're doing. I sold it for $500. I kept $250. I'm giving $250 to the church. That's not what Ananias was doing. He sold this possession of this land like everybody else did and pretended to say, I'm giving all the proceeds, but he didn't. He says, wasn't it within your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. First of all, let me say this as a way of a commercial. It's real interesting that when some preachers like to preach about all the gifts and everything, all these sensational gifts and what God is doing during the, the time of the book of Acts, it's real interesting. A lot of these guys on TV, on the website, you know, they want to authenticate their message through all these signs and miracles and, and wonders, but not a one of them ever say, and during my church service, a man dropped dead because he lied to the Holy Spirit. They don't want to preach on that. That ain't going to get people coming in and passing the chicken bucket around. But that's what happened that day. Just like when they spoke with languages that they didn't know, but the people hearing it heard in their own language for the purpose of the gospel being spread and witnessing God used that sign, that gift, to authenticate his message and preach his message. Just like when this man was healed and, and from being lame, and he was healed in the name of Jesus to authenticate what Peter was preaching, God in this death, in this judgment, was authenticating his message and his church's message that God so loved the world that he gave. This was a sign. This was just another one of them signs that you don't mess with God and what God says he means. Come to Christ or what? Die. Come to Christ and live. Or come to, don't come to Christ and die. Some people in this group, namely Ananias and Sapphira, they purposed within their heart to lie. Therefore, it weakened the church's character where earlier those that were sharing and giving were, were strengthening the church's influence and authenticating the message. This man and his wife purposed, it said, they purposed in their own heart to lie. Now, there would have been nothing wrong, another scenario, right? Had he sold that possession for $500 and kept $250 and gave $250. But he was coming to the apostles as if he, I sold it for this. Versus, hey, I sold it for this. I'm keeping this amount. The rest I'm giving the church. But he, he gave a persona as if I sold it. I'm giving everything just like everybody else is doing. He lied to the Holy Spirit. He tried to deceive. He had a purpose. He had a problem. You know what his problem was? Self-promotion. 
self-egotism. He had a problem. And he purposed and lied to God. And that line and that purpose weakened the church character. We see in that text, there was an opportunity for Ananias, there was an opportunity to bring self-importance up front. Oh, let's sell this possession, Sapphire. Oh, and then we'll, oh, we did this. And of course, the Spirit of God with the gift in Peter knew the gift of discernment. Now, that's not what you did. Why are you lying to God? But an opportunity in Ananias' life brought itself forward of exposing self-importance. So an opportunity brought self-importance. This opportunity not, not also called out to Peter. It called out that self-promotion. God, by, by the gift of, of just Peter knowing discernment, he called it out. Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are you lying to God? Why are you doing this? Was it not within your power when you sold it to know that you're going to keep something or give it all? But don't lie about it. Peter called him out. God used the gift of discernment. Because Peter wasn't there when he was, buying, when he was selling his possession. Peter just knew by the grace of God and the gift of God, the man's lying. You ever heard them preachers, they're standing up there, oh, yes, Lord. Oh, yes, yes, Lord. Uh-huh. You know, the word of knowledge. That, what Peter's doing is not that. What that is is there's a little microphone probably somewhere in that guy's ear, and he's been talking to somebody else. Who knows what the scam is? Either that or it's just satanic power, right? Because God don't work that way. But for whatever reason, this man showed up with a purpose of lying, self-promoting, self-importance, and Peter called him out. And as that opportunity to call him out, as that opportunity came about where that man could show his self-importance, an opportunity to discipline the ranks arose also. Because that's what Peter said. He called him out. The man used his opportunity to promote self. Oh, I, I sold this and I'm giving this. Peter says, no, you didn't. You may have sold this, but you're not giving that. You gave this much and kept some. Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But you're lying about what you're given. And he says, ultimately, you're not lying to me. You're lying to God. And Peter called him out, and then the opportunity was for God to discipline his ranks, which brought fear in the church. Some purposed and lied to weaken the church character. Many shared and gave, which strengthened the church influence. And then look at verse 7 to 11. Some conspired and died. Why? For the purification of the church. Look at verse 7 to 11. Some conspired and died, purifying the church body. Now, it was about three hours later. Remember, she had already conspired with him earlier, right? Him and his wife decided to do what they did. He went and did what he did, presented, and he died. God, God just moved. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She didn't even know three hours later that he's being carried out dead. What had happened? And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And see, that's why I know it's important. It's not so much important. Uh, it proves that the man was lying. He said, I sold it for this much, but he only really kept some. So 
did you sell the land for so much? She said, yes, for so much. In other words, she continued the lie. She conspired to continue the lie. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together? I know you've conspired together with your husband. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? In other words, the spirit already knows the truth. Why would you want to lie to him? What are you testing? He already knows. Just tell the truth. Confess the sin. Confess the conspiracy. To test the spirit of the Lord. Look. He says, look. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. In the midst of the church and their possessions, there was an Ananias and a Sapphira that was part of that, that larger fellowship. They began to see people doing things and, and giving things. They even saw you know, Barnabas there selling his possession. But, but remember, all the people, whatever they sold it for, they were honest about what they were giving from it. Whether they were keeping some or not, we don't know. But we know they were selling possessions. And out of those possessions, whether it was all of it or some of it, they were always honest about what they were giving and how they got it. And when they were doing that, it was bringing great influence and, 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 and great authentication to the church. But in that fellowship, there was an Ananias and Sapphira. And they thought, wow, everybody's paying attention to so-and-so that gave this. Matter of fact, it even mentions Barnabas. He gave something. Maybe they'll put our name down here. Well, they did. The Spirit of God did, didn't they? But they were wanting to do it for self-importance, self-promotion. So they sold whatever they sold, kept some up in their pocket, which there's nothing wrong with that, but gave the other part to the church, but, but gave it with the idea that they're, oh I, oh, I sold it for this. They were lying. Maybe they had a smaller possession than the other people had possessions. Therefore, in their minds, I'm giving less, so I need to elaborate on it and make myself look important. I don't know. All I know is they were lying and conspiring for their own self-promotion for sure. And God disciplined them. This conspiracy, Peter shows grace with a question. He says, ma'am, three hours later, did you not sell it for this? In other words, he gave her the price that the husband said he sold it for. Now, she had an opportunity to say, well, and of course, she didn't know her husband was dead. She could have said, well, you know, me and Ananias were thinking about that, but no, we sold it for this instead. She had an opportunity to say, nope, we did not, to do the right thing. But she was still conspirator in her heart. She didn't know her husband was dead. She had not seen the consequences of her husband lying to God. So she thought she was okay in getting away with it. But Peter shows her grace with that question. Did you not sell it for this much? And she could have said, nope, we sold it for that much. So Peter was showing grace with a question. Peter also shows discernment with his authority. And he says, you know what? You're lying. And the very men standing at the door that carried your husband away are going to carry you. He had authority by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God to pronounce that kind of judgment. And then in the last verse, when she does pass away, and of course the husband's passed away, through that, 
God shows how very seriously he takes a person's intentions. You know, we all live in an American world where lots of times things can be elaborated. We can, we can uh, embellish things. And, and, I, and I guess that's okay if you're trying to find a little humor in something or trying to do something sarcastic on purpose. Because usually when you're doing something sarcastic on purpose or embellishing on purpose, everybody knows you're just embellishing for effect. These people had the intention not to embellish for some kind of effect to bring humor or joy or anything. They were embellishing you know, on what they were giving for a self-promoting purpose. It wasn't to cause you to laugh or to maybe illustrate a lesson or to try to convey something to you. It wasn't for a, for a positive outcome. It was for their own selfishness. And God takes seriously how we speak about ourselves and our intentions. It shows that in this story, the original people that were just giving and they were giving the proceeds of those uh, possessions to the church, trusting God to use those for his glory, to help other people, to bring hope, to authenticate the message. He saw a genuineness there, and they were influencing people around them by giving honestly and by stating what they gave honestly. But this Ananias and Sapphira, in the midst of this new development of the church where people were giving and giving away possessions and things, God wanted to make real sure in this early development of people giving to the Lord's work that, hey, intentions are the main thing. So the point is this. I had a couple in Kentucky that wanted to give to the church. So we sat down with me and myself and that couple. We looked at their budget. Uh, they definitely were being responsible to pay their bills. They had two teenage girls. They could only do so much, but through that budget, we figured out, okay, then this is what we know you can give to the Lord. It's not, it's not the percentage you're wanting. It's not the amount you're wanting, but you be faithful with this is what I told him. You be faithful with this, and God will honor you. God will take care of you, but you be faithful to God, and you commit it to God. Three years later, I'm already gone, and I get a phone call. And they had a certain number they wanted to give, but they knew they couldn't. They had to be responsible to pay their bills so they could only give this much. Three years later, they had gone to another church of like faith, got busy working with the youth of that church with their daughters. And within that first year of those three years, they were asked to be the youth directors, like really be in charge of everything. So during that first year, they, they were asked to be the directors. They were still doing it for free. They were still just giving that small amount to the Lord that they knew they could through their budget, being responsible, not only to give to the Lord, but also paying your bills, being a good witness that way. And then during that second year, someone says, now that you do youth directors, and now that it's growing and the church is growing, we would like to pay you something for being the youth. Well, we never thought about that. Well, we want to give you this per week based off all the efforts and labors that you're putting into the youth. You know what that amount was every week? exactly what they desired to give every week. Two years back when they just said, I can give this, I'll give this, and God, you just honor it. Now, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen, right? But God authenticated to them, look, you're giving faithfully, you're giving responsibly, you're giving what I have provided you to give, and through that, God authenticated to them that, hey, I honor obedience, and whatever they were given as the youth director, 
that became the amount they gave right back to the church. Now, that doesn't always work out that way. They could have been a couple that could have continued to work with the youth and still only gave this amount because that's all they would have had. But in this case, God was showing them, I'm going to bless your obedience. What was God doing to Ananias and Sapphira? Well, they had bad intentions. It was all about self. It wasn't about God's work like this couple that I talked to. They just wanted to, they wanted to help God's kingdom. They really loved the Lord, and, and, and they just wanted to help. Well, for a long time, they just gave sweat equity, didn't they? And a little amount. Well, these people's intentions, Ananias and Sapphira, was about self. And they gained the rewards of their own. And God judged their intentions. In this case, very drastically through death. So that while this idea of giving to the church and the church work, that the church was developing the idea of how they're going to do it, and how it works, and how they're going to be benevolent with it. God was making sure, look, long as you know, as you start this thing, selling your possessions and giving, and just like we give of our labors and everything, he said, just know, it's not so much about the amount you're giving, it's about your intention. And if your intention is to obey me, and to do what I've provided for you to do, then you're going to be okay. But if your intentions, whether it's a lot or not, is about you, there's a consequence to it. And in this case, it was a very extreme consequence so God could pull in the reins of this idea of giving. Because had this conspiracy and tomfoolery continued and there was no punishment, then there would have been no standard for how you give to God, right? I mean, whether I want to promote myself, I just, but God said, no, the standard is, is that you're giving to me. It's an act of worship. It's not about you anymore, Steve. It's, it's about what I've provided for you and what I've led you to give. And you give it knowing that you're trusting me with this and trusting the church to do what I want them to do with it. It's no longer yours, Steve. It might have been yours through labor and by the blessing of God, but it all belonged to me. And I've given it to you as a steward to put it down and then trust me with it. <clears throat> That's the standard of giving. And these people were experiencing the extreme response of God to their lack of intentions. <clears throat> the church and their possessions was a reflection, number one, <clears throat> of their trusting God. Some were selling, many were selling, and giving back to the church. It was a reflection of their trusting God, not only to trust God with what they have left, but to trust God to use what they're giving. But it was also an exposure of those <clears throat> who would promote self and promote self-will and want to make their name important. So we learn through this idea of giving of our possessions and having possessions, we learn that it's not just a simple transaction. <clears throat> It's a matter of attitude and intentions. So as we give on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or maybe you give during Sunday school, why do we give then? Do we give just out of duty? Do we give for self-promotion? <clears throat> or do we give as the Lord leads and we give willingly and freely for the glory of God and the good of the people and to help the community and to authenticate that we believe that just as I give to the needs of others, 
and the needs of the church, God gave to me in my greatest need. Are we reflecting that? Is that our intention? Is that our attitude? And it ought to be our attitude as, as we come in one accord to give to the Lord's work. The invitation to the believer is that we as believers <clears throat> must give to God knowing that all that we have belongs to him anyways. Our possessions are for the purpose of meeting our needs. In other words, I possess things for the purpose of meeting my family's needs. When I went to pick up Joey the other day, I didn't bring any food. I didn't bring extra food. I brought some extra water because I assumed I would get at the air base about noon. He'd, he'd fly in about 1.30. I'd see him at 2. <clears throat> and then we would go home. But it ended up being a 12-hour day till 2 in the morning. But I possessed a card called a credit card. And I could buy more fuel in my car that I was sitting in, sleeping in. I could buy another meal during supper time because I had things. I possessed something to take care of my own need, right? But yet this morning when the offering came, my wife and I as an act of worship also gave to the needs of what the church sees the needs of others. We gave it with a heart of intention to do the right thing, to obey God. Our possessions are for the purpose of meeting our own needs and that what we give is there intended to meet the needs of others, whether it's hearing the gospel, whether it's feeding their belly, or whatever the Lord leads the church to do with that money. It is a way that we meet the needs of others. We are stewards and gatekeepers to our own needs and the needs of other people. And as we give to ourselves, to our needs, and as we give to the needs of others, it is a reflection to authenticate what we say we believe. And that is, for God so loved that he gave his only son. Well, why wouldn't we want to love by giving in the right, true sense? His message is authenticated through our giving. Our possessions and how they are used is an expression of the gospel. Christ gave himself to God's pleasure to minister to all believers to give us the grace, our greatest need. We needed grace to be saved from our sins. How we give, not so much what we give, but how we give to the Lord's work is a reflection of how we believe God gave to us freely. And he gave it all, whatever, whatever was the need, he gave all that we needed. What does this mean to a non-believer, someone who's never come to Christ? Well, giving is a practice that we all have in this culture. Everybody perhaps gives to some kind of uh, benevolent organization, some organization that's bigger than them, you know, whatever it may be. So it's in our culture, at least in the American culture, that if you have something, you're, you're to give. Give back to other charitable contributions like the church or maybe other organizations. So it's within our American culture to give to those kind of things. But giving, giving can be a way uh, uh, that we give out of overflow perhaps. Or sometimes giving can be giving out of sacrifice. I mean... When I was buying myself a chicken salad sandwich for supper the other day, 
It was with a credit card. I didn't like that because it's interest. But I knew it was out of my abundance that I could buy me a chicken salad sandwich, right? However, there have been times in Karen and I's marriage that we didn't have that overflow, but we gave anyways. Whatever that might have been, we might have opened our home to somebody and made sure they had food and a place to stay. We might have done other things that wasn't so much monetary handling of money, but it was a way of helping people. And we gave sacrificially knowing that although we can meet our needs and we've got some surplus, this is going to be way above what we would normally have. And so we're going to just do the right thing. So even in our society, people give out of overflow. Some people give out of sacrifice. It's part of our American culture. But listen, the Bible says that Jesus said God reigns on the just and the unjust. In other words, God sends rain on the just farmer and the unjust farmer. Why? Because that's his common grace. He does things for people, whether they're lost or saved, all the time. He reigns on the just and the unjust. That is called God's common grace. And we alluded to it in Sunday school this morning. We alluded to it Wednesday night when I talked about just the fact that you were born physically in this world is a a common grace from God. Because listen, had God not chose to form you and weave you in your mother's womb, guess what? You would not exist today. You would have never even been a thought. So just in his common grace, he's giving you life. And I know what you're saying. Yeah, but you don't know my life. Well, I don't. And I know life can really stink sometimes, but think about it. You're here breathing. You're sitting next to somebody that you at least think loves you, right? You're around other people. And you're experiencing relationship. So just the common grace that you're physically born in this world is God reigning on the just and the unjust. He has given you physical life. And I know, like I said, sometimes life can really stink. And, and you know, the good news is, is you have a church here today that cares about you. But as we think about that common grace, how God has given to the reign on the just and unjust, that's good enough. But listen, he has a specific grace. That while you're living out this common life by common grace that you exist, he not only gave out of his surplus to give us physical life, because he just wanted to, out of his sacrificial love, he gave us a specific grace. And that is through Jesus Christ. To have a greater, eternal, fulfilling relationship with the Father. So listen, this would be a challenge or an invitation to the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever today and you just exist in this world, you ought to just thank God that he's reigned on the just and the unjust. He has given you a common grace that you didn't deserve. And had he not chosen to do it, you wouldn't even exist, let alone have a name and a life. That ought to humble you enough. But knowing in the midst of your existence how far you have strayed from the, from the, from the laws of God and transgressed the laws of God, just like we who are the church, we come to a place and realize, as good as that life is, I have strayed. I have missed the mark. Well, you know what? The good news is God doesn't say you have to exist in your guilt. He says, I want to offer grace through my sacrifice of my son. So just as we give out of surplus, just as we give out of sacrifice sometimes, God gave out of surplus a common grace, and out of his sacrifice, he gave a saving grace, a specific grace that is just 
to save you from your sins. So the challenge to the non-believer would be this. Be humble in your existence. Be repentant of your condition and turn to God. And find not only just enjoyment of common grace in this life, but find a eternal, gracious grace in eternal life. Find true purpose. Find true devotion like the people earlier. They gave because God gave to them. They're just reflecting God in common things. And some gave out of the general overflow and some gave sacrificially. Some gave this much, some gave that much. And then, of course, some of them made it all about themselves. Don't be a lost person and make it about yourself. Because it'll end in eternal death. But if you'll come to Jesus Christ and say, God, I'm just glad I exist today, as the preacher said. But God, as I exist, I know it's not good. And I know the outcome's not going to be good. And then we would encourage you to cry out to Jesus Christ as your Savior and be saved through his sacrificial giving. So I'm going to ask Bill and the ladies to come forward for hymn number 418. And if you're here this morning and God has convinced you that you need Christ, God has tugged on your heart, I'm going to encourage you to do one of two things. Either come down the aisle and say, Preacher, I need to get saved. I need to get saved today. Or right where you're at, reach out to God and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. I need to be saved. Call out to Jesus because whoever calls on him will be saved. If you're here this morning, you're a believer and you have a need, whether you come forward or not, wave me down. I will come to you. Joe will turn off the microphone. I'll come to you, whatever your need is. So there's no excuse. You can either come forward or you can let me know or you can find me after the service and say, Pastor, I need you to follow up on this. This is your invitation where we can minister the word of God and and prayer to you. But hymn number 418, correct? 418, stand for the hymn of invitation.